everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. We are 100% sponsor-based, which means that all the revenues we derive come from sponsorships. But I try to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically trying to choose those who have values well aligned to the values expressed on this show, like freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do is a few ad reads right here at the top of the show and then a few ad, ad reads in the middle. And I hope you won't skip them. I hope you'll take the time, listen and see what they have to offer, because again, these are hand selected sponsors. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Swan Private is a concierge financial services firm based in Los Angeles. Now, I've known the Swan team for years, and these guys are laser focused on the Bitcoin mission. They even have a zero tolerance policy for all shitcoining. Recently, their CEO, Corey Clipston, was instrumental in calling out many of these crypto scams right before they collapsed, saving a lot of people a lot of money in the process. Swan Private focuses on guiding high net worth individuals and businesses on all aspects of Bitcoin strategy, including buying, custodying, and market research. This concierge service provides you direct access to a private advisor by text, phone, or email. So go to swanprivate.com slash breedlove today to sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized US dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. Pascal Najadi, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Uh, thank you, Robert, for having me. Uh, it's a great pleasure and an honor to be with you here tonight from my end. Uh, we are in Switzerland and uh, yeah let's let's talk yes let's talk indeed this is a kind of a special episode actually because this is the first time we've done something like this you have a crew local with you in switzerland recording you i have a crew here in nashville tennessee so we're doing kind of a pseudo in-person interview even though we're talking uh, remote over zoom so this is pretty cool um just by way of quick introduction you are a former swiss investment banker uh, you worked for Merrill Lynch in London and New York, and then later you worked for uh, Dresden Bank Group, which was the second largest bank group in Germany in the 1990s. Later, you worked in London and you were responsible for government debt and privatization advisory. And now you are in early retirement as a peace and Bitcoin advocate residing in Switzerland. Um, quite the career you've had there spanning a lot of different domains. Um, could you give us just a little bit of, uh, your background story from your perspective and, and what brought you to Bitcoin? Yes, uh, with pleasure. Um, I'm a traditional banker from the old school. I started working at the UBS in Zurich internship in 1986. Um, 
And through the process, uh, I, I learned a lot about international finance through UBS, through the internship. Then I didn't like banking. Then I left banking and went to PR first. And later in the in the 80s, I, in 89, I went back to banking. And it was actually Merrill Lynch who wanted to open an office in Zurich, a uh, capital markets office. And uh, they hired me to help the team to build Merrill Lynch in Switzerland, which we did. And in 1992, um, um, I was promoted to go to London to join Merrill Lynch, the colleagues in London. I was always on the debt side of things, um, on origination side, advising governments on their debt uh, structuring and uh, raising debt. And my territory was Central Europe, Central Asia, Russia, Middle East, and Africa. So it was quite a big footprint that I had to cover with my team. And it was very interesting times, you know, you know, the, the, the German East German wall came down late 80s. So all the capital flew, uh, flowed from Europe eastwards towards Central Europe. It was a, a fantastic moment. So you had Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia, you had um, uh, Croatia, Slovenia, um, all those countries in the Baltics, of course, they were all eager to, to raise debt at the time. It was also politically correct or polit there was a political will from the West to finance the East, to stabilize it and to make it grow. And we benefited from that. We, we issued a lot of debt for those countries. But how it started with the debt issuance for Central Europe is a nice story. I was still a junior um, AVP, not much to say in the, in the office. Um, and one day out of one day the reception called me and they said i got a dr harshagi for you from hungary he's the deputy president of the national bank of hungary and my boss the the general director was not there he was on a trip of course i wanted to present this man protocol wise to my boss it would have been correct so i was in a mismatch an avp receiving a deputy president of the Hungarian National Bank. And he spoke very good uh, German. So uh, I invited him to the office. Uh, I served him coffee and I asked him what he wanted from us. W why did you come to see us? It's very nice that you're coming by. And he said, I need 150 million Swiss francs very soon because we have to service the debt from the IMF. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I was a bit... Uh, gobsmacked to be honest uh, i didn't know what to say because we were not yet in emerging markets we were not yet active and i gave him a, a book about the swiss alps so that his trip was not in vain and i said we'll look at this we'll call you he went on to frankfurt to the uh to the uh what do you call that the representative office of the hungarian national bank in frankfurt and my boss came back uh, in the evening I was still in the office. I, I told him all that. I made a call report. And I said, we, we can do 150 million Swiss francs, seven-year maturity, a straight bond, a public bond for, for Hungary, the National Bank of Hungary. So our traders had no clue. Our swap department had no clue about Hungary. Our research was not prepared. We decided the next day to price it, and we priced it. 
um, at that time, it was a, a triple B credit. It was just investment grade. And <laughs> I remember we made the firm offer on a fax to Frankfurt. And I, I, I called him. I said, Dr. Harshagi, are you a man of quick decisions? We have, a, we have priced your bond. Are you a man of quick decisions? He said, yes, of course. And I said, please sign the fax and fax it back. That was on the 1st of April, 1991. I remember, it was the Fool's Day, 91. Mm. So we launched the bond at lunchtime in the Swiss market, 150 million Reuters. We made a, a release. Uh, we released 150 million Swiss francs for the National Bank of Hungary at a seven-year tenor, first Swiss franc bond issue in the history of Hungary. And we invited the other banks as a co-lead, UBS, Credit Suisse, all the big boys. They were laughing at us. They said, you, you're joking, right? It's fool's day. <laughs> it's April 1. So it's a fool's, you must be joking. I mean, you know, I said, no, no, we're not, we're not joking. We're doing it. So that bond issue was a huge success. It was sold out the same day. And uh, we had a lot of German banks joining because the Germans and the Austrians had a better understanding about Hungary than the Swiss. It was very interesting. So we had Deutsche Bank, Commerzbank, Dresdner Bank, all the Landes banks, the state banks of, 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 of Germany in this bond. It was a big inaugural moment for Hungarians and us. <laughs> so I, I must say, honestly speaking, this man made my career hmm. because after that, they told me, Pascal, now you do emerging markets, you focus on all those territories. And I started in Central Europe. So for me, it was really a, a wow moment, a chance to perform, a chance to work hard and a chance to get promoted, of course, um, and you know make a career. So I became the expert for Central Europe very fast. And we did another bond for Hungary and we did financings for Poland, for Czech Republic, uh, because they were seeing how aggressive we are doing the deals for Hungary. So it had a domino effect. They they wanted to join us, uh, the, the club, and uh, it became interesting for us to serve service this, this group of, of countries, uh, which were just east of today's European Europe. I mean, you know, most of them are now in the EU. But at that time, the EU was not in the East yet. Uh, so that was a wild moment. And because of this, Merrill Lynch promoted me to go to London as a vice president in 92. And um, with the same uh, territory uh, to service out of London, the debt and the traders, our research in London, of course, were much more versed about the territory than my Swiss colleagues at home. When I went to London, I said, "Why? What do I do in London? I have no friends there. I was a real Swiss guy." And they said, "No, you must go. It will make you a good career. Do it." And uh, I don't regret it. It was it was a good move um, to do that. Um, so later on, this territory was expanded to Central Asia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and other other stands. Um, they were all getting independent. They were all getting independent from the former Soviet Union. And it was a, a very interesting time. It was a, a pioneering time. 
uh, the money they needed for, we call it general budgetary purposes, mostly for infrastructure and uh, social economic, socioeconomic development. Uh, we printed billions of bonds and notes, short-term notes, long-term bonds for those countries to finance their evolution in mm. the new free world. For them, it was a free world coming out of, you know, the Warsaw Pact or the communism of the Soviet Union. And they all needed roads, they needed telecom modernization, they needed social plans for their um, population. You need money. And it came from the West. So we had Western money coming in from America, Europe, and interestingly, Asia. Hmm. Our biggest investors were in Japan, the Japanese banks, and the Korean banks. And the Koreans were funny because they understand, for instance, Hungary very well. They, they are, in a way, the same DNA like the Hungarians because a thousand years ago, the, tribe, the tribes had an argument near Kazakhstan and they separated. One tribe went east and ended up in Seoul and the other tribe went west and ended up in Budapest. So if you go to Budapest, there's a square called the Square of the Seven Heroes. These are big statues of, of Mongols on horses, seven horses, seven, seven warriors. And then the Finnish tribes came from the north and mixed with the, with the Mongols, and that made Hungarians. So the Koreans understood very well Hungary, and they invested a lot of money into that country. It was very, very fascinating uh, to see that happening. It's <clears throat> super, super interesting that you just somewhat by chance yeah. fell into this, right? The, the, Pure um, chance. The boss was gone on a trip and yeah. and, and hungry comes knocking for 150 million euros. Yeah. And there you are. Um, Swiss francs, I beg you pardon, oh, Swiss francs. Swiss the Frank. euro was not born there yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> Hard to keep up with all these currencies flying around. Um, yeah. The USSR then, I guess, so the, the serendipity of that is the Soviet Union had fractured uh i guess just after that just a few years after 91 91 so five yeah what year was it i'm sorry the gentleman approached you originally from hungary yeah 91 oh so it's all happening at the same time yeah yeah and then that those countries i guess effectively became new emerging market countries and that Absolutely. they were they're kind of freed from uh the oppression of communism or the, or the USSR yeah. and they're sort of newly capitalistic. And then we, we saw capital start to flow from the East and the West into these markets to build out infrastructure and whatnot. Um, exactly. Interesting story. It's fascinating to me how these little, little accidents of history just kind of changed the trajectory of people's lives and careers. Completely. Um, it was a blessing from the sky. Um, you know, uh, I traveled a lot, uh, working very hard for Merrill Lynch, London, going every week to those countries, listening to them, listening to them, asking them about their progress on GDP growth, on inflation and stuff like that. And, you know, they were very eager 
to present a good picture. And there was variations. You had the Polish people, um, the Minister of Finance of Poland was always ex exaggerating. Oh, we're going to have 6% growth, 7% growth. Uh, they never made it. They made 4%, 5%, 4.5%. The Hungarians were more modest. They said 5% and they delivered 6%. Mm -hmm. and, um, so that was a very interesting time. Then we had the Yugoslav, Yugoslav war, which was very close to Europe very close only one hour flight time from switzerland here mm. um and that was a disaster um it influenced a lot uh, you had serbia attacking croatia and slovenia and slovenia and croatia broke away from yugoslavia and there was a terrible war until 95 mm. um uh terrible war uh costing many many lives and it was it was just very bad mm. um and during the time of the war, I couldn't go to Croatia, for instance, because there was war. Mm -hmm. um, when the war ended, uh, peace agreements were signed um, in Dayton. Uh, they signed the peace agreement in 95 in August. That was the time when I went to Croatia. And there's another funny story. I met the Croats, the Minister of Finance in Vienna during the war in conferences, etc. And he was saying, please finance us now. I said, I can't. There's no market for you. There's no investors. They look at CNN. They see tanks. They see, you know, destruction. Uh, it's impossible to create a story and you have no ratings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I felt bad because they were begging and they needed the money. Uh, so the Croatians were actually the other serendipity because when I, when the war was over, I flew to Zagreb, that's the capital of Croatia, and it was empty. It was just full of United Nations, white tanks, white planes, white tents, full mm -hmm. of it at the airport. And I went to the old hotel uh, Esplanade. And in the morning, the next morning, I get a phone call at six thirty in the morning. It was the, it was the it was Mr. Mitnacht, and he said, "I remember this very well." He said, "Good morning." We know that you are in Croatia, in Zagreb. I said, yes, of course. Uh, I'm, you know, Merrill Lynch. And, and he said, can we have breakfast in one hour? I said, sure. I didn't know the guy. He was the economic advisor to the U.S. ambassador to Croatia. I was curious to meet him because I was curious why he was calling me at half past six in the morning. And at the, at the, at the, at the breakfast, he said, we know that you're going to meet the minister of finance at nine o'clock. Could you make your, your point that we would love to have Croatia buying Boeing aircraft for the airline? <laughs> I mm. said, I'm, I'm here for a different reason, sir. Um, I don't think that that's top of the list, but I'll keep it in mind. So I went to the meeting and the minister was there and he said, we have given a mandate to UBS, my competition. And I said, we'll do a better job. We are bigger. We are more. Uh, 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 networked around the world with investors than UBS was and I said we also will do the ratings for your country for free rating advisory the country had no rating and I said let's do a bond issue we will do the ratings and we'll do the first bond issue for the Republic of Croatia um, for you and he said oh I cannot afford to have a test and I said, it's not about the test, it's about success. 
Then he left the room, went to his office, came back to the meeting room. And I thought, I'm out. That's it. I lost the game. Mm. And he said, okay, you have to work with UBS together. You two have a co-lead. And I want you two to work together. I said, that's fine. That even broadens our, 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 our placement power. And to work with the Swiss bank, the biggest one in Switzerland, was, was a pleasure to work with. So we did the ratings for Croatia, which resulted in a triple B, which it was investment grade and it, it served the purpose. But we had to market the country. Nobody knew that Croatia was safe. They still had in their heads the pictures of destruction and war. So we had to make a marketing campaign. And how do you do it? Uh, at that time, we had no Zoom meetings. You had to go in person to every investor. Hmm. So we took, we went around the world eastwards from Zurich, Hong Kong, Korea, Japan, LA, San Francisco, Chicago, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, Boston, Hartford, New York, uh, Paris, Milan, Zurich, Frankfurt, London. We did this in, in 21 days, like a rock band. Wow. <laughs> and in every meeting, we had about 100 investors who were curious about the country. So we had questions like, can you draw us the borders of Croatia? Mm -hmm. um, in, in Korea, we had a guy at the back end of the room. He said, I, I've read your constitution three times. He said, page 45, article 3b, um, how do you deal with the gold reserves of your country? And we just had to, we had no clue up there about this very question. Um, so forth and back, forth and back, we had to imp improvise and tell people uh, the truth and that they understand that the country is safe and stable, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so we launched 300 million US dollar bond issue for seven years out of London after this huge trip around the world um and it was a big success so mm. we, we we gave birth to croatia and the capital markets and uh it was a big success for everybody yeah that's really interesting i you know i was in croatia in 2016 actually and i recall i think it was in in or near dubrovnik there yeah. was still damage from the war yeah and that war ended in the 90s is that 95 95 yeah so yeah. um interesting how long the scars remain um maybe this is a good segue actually into the present day war that's on uh, the top of everyone's mind in the world and yeah. we're recording this in late um it was late september 2022 and i'm referring to the war in ukraine the russia ukraine war um, and you've you've published some thoughts about that. You you actually were a, you were so kind to be a guest contributor on the Freedom Analects, which is uh, the Substack blog that I run. You wrote a very interesting piece there. Um, how how do you think about the war in Ukraine? What what's going on over there, and what types of risk are we facing? Um, geopolitically like could this thing get out of hand and and spin into something spin into a much larger conflict than we're seeing currently and and if so you know what are the signs to look out for yes unfortunately 
the outlook is not good. We are now on the 27th of September, 2022. Um, the, the Russians and the Donbass republics have done referenda and the people had votes. Yesterday, the results came out. The four regions, all of them want to join the Russian Federation. I suspect that Moscow will fast track them and integrate them into the Russian Federation by in three days, by September 30th. So by that time, those regions will be Russian Federation territory. Now, there was a lot of trading going on uh, as a prelude to that between the UK, NATO, the US and the Russians, um, both trading indirect threats of use of nuclear weapons. And here is the problem. Nuclear weapons have been established by East and West as a deterrent not to fire them. Um, if, 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 if nuclear weapons get fired, then that's the ap apocalypse. It really is. Uh, it will befall us uh, something that we don't want. It will be biblical uh, consequences. And the problem is that the rhetoric has gone up. And if you read between the lines, the rhetoric has gone up. And mutual destruction will be the result. Now, the mechanics of the war from now on today and the next few days and weeks is simple to understand. Uh, I think if Ukraine continues to shell the new Russian, well, the Russian territory, Russia will declare war on Ukraine. It will go to the next level. They will, they will call it an anti-terrorist operation, um, which, is, which will be hugely destructive. And let's make clear, this war is wrong. And war is always wrong. Peace is the only solution. Peace has to win over war, always. Mm -hmm. um, but now we are in this mess. And what, what, we are, what the West is, is doing right now is they have a, the EU has an energy crisis coming because they sanctioned Russia. There's no gas. So socioeconomically, the EU is going down. We had elections a few days ago in Italy where a far-right government came to power, mm. Meloni, which promises to serve the people first and then the other issues. Now we have a situation where Russia feels cornered. If you corner a bear, I really mean it, a big bear, it's not a good idea. You know, it's better to run away if you can. Um, the rhetoric from Moscow is quite threatening. And I would say this, if Ukraine continues to attack Russia, the, the territories that are becoming Russia now in a few days, I think the Russians will keep it on the conventional war level, okay? But if NATO gets involved and overtly starts 
to get involved in action in war against the Russian Federation territory, we will have an escalation that nobody wants. So now I spoke a few to friends in Washington DC yesterday, um, some senior people from the intelligence community, um, they're in retirement, uh, they're experts. And we concluded last night that there is a race going on right now between the intelligence community in Washington and the political side in Washington. And the intelligence side is advocating peace negotiations because they know very well what can happen. The political side is unsure where to go to continue the aggressive stance or whether to negotiate peace. The Russians said today that they're ready to negotiate peace. So we have two principles that are important here. Ukraine is is not important. Well, it's important because it's a victim. But right now in the, in the negotiations, we have to get both principles, America and Russia, onto the table to negotiate peace. So there's a race going on between for peace and there is a race going on for escalating the war. Of course, the first option is the preferred way to stop this madness that's going on, right? Um, so there comes the other factor of Switzerland. Switzerland was, was a neutral country always since 1815 through the Paris Accords. We gained uh, our neutrality through the Paris Accords 1815, which were confirmed in the, in the Vienna Congress in the same year. And since then, we are neutral. Our president made a big mistake at the beginning of this war because he started to take sides. Mm. If you're neutral and we don't want to be mediator, you cannot take sides. You really must stand in the middle, pound both sides down and uh, moderate uh, negotiation. Because he took sides, we have now lost our ability to stand up and offer our good offices and services to these uh, warring parties because they don't trust us anymore. They say you're not neutral anymore because we, we imposed EU sanctions on the Russian Federation. So from the Russian perspective, we are unreliable, not, not neutral, our currency is not reliable, etc., etc. From their perspective, they are right, of course. The West, of course, has pressured Switzerland to take over the EU sanctions and impose them on Russia. Just to go back in history a bit, in the Vietnam War, the Korean War, Iraq 1, Iraq 2, Afghanistan, Libya, Yugoslavia, Switzerland was always neutral remained neutral, did not get involved at all. Here we have a different story. So I'm hammering back the message here in this country to our president to change the course to, let's say, on Monday, lift the sanctions on Russia and on Tuesday morning, call for peace negotiations in Geneva. 
the only way to stop this madness is a diplomatic negotiated peace. And in this process, both parties have to give and take. It cannot be that Russia says, we take the whole territory and Crimea and that's it, we have peace. And it cannot be that Ukraine says we want everything back. That's that's not my decision to judge how they will negotiate. It's above my pay grade. Mm-hmm. And it's not my job to make a prediction here. Uh, but my job is as a Swiss citizen to make people aware that peace must be established because otherwise we have escalation. And the escalation will be confrontation between NATO and the Russian Federation, which is a nightmare. It's a complete nightmare. Okay. And Mr. Putin, he cannot go back. He cannot backtrack because he will lose face. He will he will collapse. And so Russia cannot backtrack at the moment. And the West cannot backtrack because it's too deeply involved at the moment in this conflict. So what we have to avoid is that the big powers fight each other. Uh, So that's the snapshot. To recap, in three days, those territories will be part of the Russian Federation. And which territories are these specifically? The Donbass. There are four territories. The size of it is about 80,000 square kilometers, which is the size of twice Switzerland. And we're talking about eight to 10 million people uh, in population. Hmm. Okay. Uh, and what is the, in your estimation, it's hard to get good information here in the United States, I feel like, especially on this topic. What is the original motivation for Russia to attempt to seize Ukraine or to invade Ukraine in the first place? Is this a matter of natural resources? No. But what, what is Putin's original motivation in your estimation? There's there's three three topics here to to for that uh, question to answer. In my pers- from my perspective, as a neutral Swiss person, um, I think Russia felt threatened with the NATO expansion towards the east in front of their doorstep. That's the first point. They were begging last year, end of last year, for security guarantees from NATO and the US. They were ignored. Mm. Um, first step. Second, second reason: the Donbas has been attacked by Ukraine uh, since uh, 2014, eight years, and 14,000 civilians have lost their lives. Those are ethnically Russian people, civilians. Mm. The third point is: I think Mr. Putin got the wrong advice. They thought. If they go in with a massive attack, that the people will lay down their arms and they will wave Russian flags. That was not the case. Um, Ukraine had signed the Minsk agreements in 2014 and 15, whereby it was agreed that the Donbas would become autonomous within Ukraine, so the people would be protected and have their own lifestyle. To, to, to for their well-being, okay. That Minsk agreement was monitored and policed by uh, by Germany and France. 
But there's the problem. <laughs> you know, NATO partners should monitor the peace agreement and police it. It's wrong. It should have been Switzerland, neutral Switzerland, doing that job um, to monitor and police those agreements. That didn't happen. Ukraine ignored them and it fell apart completely. It didn't work. It's like if you tell a bank robber with a key to guard the bank. It doesn't work. They have interests. They have interests on a multi-layered spectrum, France and Germany as a NATO partner. So in this time between the agreements of 2014 and 15 up to 2022, Ukraine has used that time to build up a stronger army and NATO was supporting them. By the time the Russians attacked, uh, Ukraine was the largest, strongest army in all of Europe. Quite sophisticated and well-trained by, by the West, by NATO. So the reason I think is misjudgment uh, is wrong. Negotiations should have been continuing. Um, the what can I tell you? The war is wrong, and it 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 serves no purpose except complete destruction. And now again, we are in a very dangerous situation here whereby we have two nuclear powers opposing each other and the uk also made threats you have Liz Truss, who's a bit of a narcissist uh, promoting herself for the election saying that she will use nuclear weapons against russia that kind of rhetoric is not good then you had the, the former president of russia the former president mr medvedev saying the same thing that they will fry london or england uh, doesn't serve the purpose to speak about such threats. Because when you have the big weapon in your hand, the first thing you do, you don't threaten the opposition. You make it clear that you have them, but when you speak, you put every word and comma on a scale to make sure it doesn't come across as a threat. Um, so we are here in the situation which is extremely Dangerous. And in three days from now, those territories, the Donbass, will be Russian Federation territory. So that's and the situation so, we, are, we are in. That's the point if Ukraine continues to shell uh, the Donbass territories after they become part of the Russian Federation. That is the inflection point you think that this would escalate to full-blown warfare. Yes, because that's the mechanics of war. Uh, uh, Trotsky uh, developed a proverb. He said, you might not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. That's where we are. And as you rightly said, if look, if Mexico would shell the US across the border, killing people, I'm sure the US would react. It has to defend itself. Otherwise, you know, it, it would not be credible anymore on the world stage. Um, Russia has the same principles. It will defend herself. She will defend herself. And 
they said if it escalates and if they feel threatened in their existence, they will use the full arsenal available to them, which of course means atomic nuclear weapons systems. Extremely, extremely scary. It's very scary because we are sitting here, Switzerland, as you know, geographically, we are right in the middle here. Germany is only one and a half hours by car, the border to the north. And if this happens, we will be completely contaminated. We, we will also suffer greatly from such a disaster. That's why, to go back to the peace, and we're having this discussion here, an open discussion, an honest discussion, because I would want to make sure that the audience and the viewers understand today or tomorrow, they understand that we are in a very critical stage and situation. And in the old days, in the old days, you had the UN come in with proposals to stabilize, to mediate. It should be Switzerland's job to stand up because we can. We manage 30% of the global wealth. That's a lot for our small country. We have the power to stand up and call for peace. If we then are credible for both sides, we need both sides at the table. It serves no purpose if we have Washington in Geneva on the table and the Russians refuse to come. There is no peace negotiation happening. So that's where we stand. It's critical. I don't want to sound alarmist at all. I'm a Swiss military officer in retirement. Um, the situation, the mechanics of war, as you concluded rightly, are pretty simple to understand. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And the leverage that Switzerland has in both its neutrality, neutrality and its um, participation and management of that large fraction of the global wealth seems clear that it could use that leverage to try and push this situation towards a peaceful diplomatic resolution. Yes. So I think um, you, know, you made a great point earlier that Russia is kind of like a bear backed into a corner. Yeah. And um, it just called to mind for me, you know, Sun Tzu's art of war. You know, he makes that point that you never want to push an enemy who has nothing to lose, right? Yes. Um, because if you've got nothing to lose, then that's when you're going to fight the hardest. And in fact, he often advises generals to like cut off the lines of retreat for their own army such that they have nothing to lose to yes. cause them to fight harder. Um, I just thought that was a really good insight. You mentioned right before we took a break that you wanted to talk about your great-grandfather. Uh, Great-grand-uncle, yes. Grand-uncle. Uh, about the principles of peace and negotiation and realpolitik. Uh, my great-grand-uncle, Rudolf Minger, you can Google him, he was a farmer from my mother's side. The, the line uh, is from my mother's side. Um, was a federal council and president of the Swiss Confederation, Switzerland during the Second World War. You can imagine our small country in the middle, surrounded by Germans, by the Nazis at the time. And we were fearful because we had no army to defend our land. 
it was in perspective terms it was one horse and a few cannons and facing the german war machine that was surrounding us from the north and from the south with mussolini in italy and my great granduncle took the initiative and went to the north of our border to negotiate with Mr. Hitler personally. And he asked him, what do you want? What do you want from us? We have no resources. We have no money. At that time, banking, Swiss banking was not yet developed. We were poor. Switzerland was a poor country with an underdeveloped defensive army and neutral. But we had nothing. In Switzerland, you have a bit of land and you have a lot of mountains. And Hitler said, I want to transfer my weapons from north to south to serve Mussolini with our weapons. And my great granduncle said, is that what you want? Is that really what you're striving, what you want from us? And he took a decision. He said, if that's what you want, you go ahead. We remain neutral, we let, but we let your trains go from, through our railroad network north to south. This saved our country from being completely overrun by the Nazis. As a consequence, we became an island of peace in the middle of Europe, and a lot of Jewish victims and families migrated to Switzerland because we were the only country that had no war in Europe. And it had a knock-on effect. Um, the biggest Swiss private bank here is a Jewish bank who benefited from the great migration of Jewish people out of Germany, the most of them, and Austria into Switzerland. So about realpolitik, when you have a gun on your head in a dark alley at three in the morning from a robber, a criminal, and he wants my wallet, I, I will say, is that what you want? You know, I, I give it to you, please. Let me live, because I want to live. If I can, I will run away. But if the gun is on my head, I can't run away. And this person might be crazy enough to pull the trigger. You don't know. So in that fear, you, you have to make a quick decision how to react. Now, if you are a martial arts, a great martial arts expert, you probably could overcome the robber i i think there would be techniques of certain martial arts techniques to do that but most people don't have that and switzerland was naive weak not trained so to speak to defend herself at all so we had that path of if you want to say so to remain neutral remain peaceful uh, not have to war reaching our people and complete destruction by the Germans at the time. And with Ukraine, it's the same thing. Every party in this war has to contribute to peace. It cannot be that one party takes everything and says, now we want peace, you know, we have our, our land or vice versa, we want everything back. Um, there must be compromises and that has to be negotiated and the monitoring and the moderation should come from Switzerland, and to go back to the mechanics of peace negotiations, 
we can only be credible if we don't have a fracture in our neutrality, which we have now, because we imposed EU sanctions on Russia. That's a, yeah, great point. I, I want to ask you about this. So I've, I've, and I've heard a lot of this secondhand, so please correct anything sure. incorrect. But from what I have heard of some of the speeches Putin has been giving recently, um, a couple of the points he keeps making are that the West has been very irresponsible with monetary policy, right? We've just been printing and printing and printing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Russia has been one of the biggest net buyers of gold, I think, in the past decade. China's another. Yeah. And is also, I think, the largest net producer. I'm not sure yeah. if I'm not sure where Russia falls on that. Um, and then so to say, you know, Putin has been very critical of the the fiat currency regime that the West has been running. And um most recently, this was actually just this week, uh, Russia announced that they, they gave Edward Snowden citizenship. Correct. And um, there's also been some rhetoric in Putin's speeches that I've understood to be anti-globalist agenda. So anti-WEF, yes. um, things of this nature. I, I it's odd to me. I, I feel a bit of dissonance here because obviously I never advocate for war of any kind. We're very anti-state, anti-war in general on this show, directly. Yeah. But for someone to take a stand against certain initiatives like that, like you know the excessive printing of fiat currency, um, globalist agendas like the WEF is pushing, I feel a bit of dissonance personally that um, someone is is standing up against that, at least representing that they're standing up against that. How do yeah. you interpret that? And, and first of all, you know, like I said, feel free to push back on the veracity of any of it because I've heard most of it secondhand. Uh, no, you're right. What you said is correct. Um, if, if I may explain. Uh, on the 24th of February, when Russia decided to enter Ukraine with military action, they call it special military operation. Um, the West has lost its hegemony. Simple fact was, is, since then, Putin is the only leader in the world who can stand up against the West. First point. Second point about the money printing. He's absolutely right when he says that exuberance of money printing and overspending creates inflation. Because he's not stupid. He's a lawyer by training. And he has very good technical advisors around him, central bank, ministry of finance, and professors from universities who guide the Kremlin in those um, thought processes. So now, as you know, in the West, Biden or other people are saying, oh, we have inflation. It's because of Putin. Some people say I lost a job. It's because of Putin. It's very easy to say and find an excuse uh, the inflation problem did not start in the West on the 24th of February 2022. It started pre-COVID already, right? And especially through COVID, there was helicopter money going everywhere to calm down the people, right? Um, capital mistakes were done. You saw the money expansion, M2, 
shooting up like a like a rocket the curve you can everybody can take it from the internet um masses of, of amounts were printed so he's not wrong if he says the west is responsible for their own doing when it comes to inflation and uh, money uh, expansion in the in the west uh in the same uh, token, Russia is the largest pool of natural resources. The country is vast. It's huge. Switzerland fits 414 times into Russia. Uh, I fly from Moscow to the eastern border on the Bering Street. I fly nine and a half hours over the same country through 11 time zones can you imagine 11 time zones in one country <laughs> try to make a consolidated balance sheet on christmas uh, new year end of year it's a quite complicated process um so from the russian perspective purely russian perspective putin has stood up against the west and has proven to them that russia is rich and strong economically. He switched the resource payments from dollars and euros into rubles, forcing the West to buy them in rubles. And you saw the effect the ruble shot up in value against the US dollar. Um, this is the development they are in. People said that Russia will collapse economically. People said that inflation will go rampant, you know, 20%, 30% hyperinflation. Uh, the contrary is the case. The central bank just last week lowered interest rates <laughs> um, because they have a very strong currency right now. And you're right, the gold reserves are huge. Some of them are reported, some of them are not reported. And what people forget also, Russia is the biggest owner of diamonds in the world. And, uh, you know, it's it sounds funny to talk about diamonds here, but if you have a room full of diamonds, you, you have a lot of capital. So I think from that perspective, um, the Russians look strong, but the war will escalate. Unfortunately, I don't want to see that. And unfortunately, the real problems will start then uh, in a few days, I suspect, because the West will not stop the operation, their operation. And Russia, from her perspective and her constitution, must defend her borders. So it's programmed. The mechanics of war are very visible now. And everybody can understand what is happening economically uh, on both sides. We have Europe going into a total energy crisis. Uh, Mrs. von der Leyen has, sorry to say that, no clue what she's talking about. Mr. Scholz of Germany and Mrs. Baerbock, the foreign minister, have no clue what they're talking about. The deindustrialization industrialization is happening in Germany as we speak because SMEs, small companies, middle-sized companies and, and conglomerates have to either winds down their operations because they don't have gas to run it. And as you saw yesterday, we know it from the news this morning, 
Nord Stream 2, the second pipeline, the new pipeline from Russia to, to Germany, uh, has blown up underwater, which means even if the Germans now say we take the gas from Nord Stream 2 because Nord Stream 1 cannot function because of technical problems, they can't. So now we have an energy crisis that is programmed. And what bothers me is the general public is aware of this because their energy bills are going through the, through the roof. The middle class gets poorer and they go and take the streets now to protest. At the same time, you have on the 1st of October, in a few days, you have German military patrolling German streets. Uh, you know, this is intimidation because the people want to revolt. They want to stop the sanctions to get gas. But now, even if they wanted the gas, technically, they can't because the Nord Stream 2 pipeline just blew up yesterday overnight. The question is, is it sabotage by either party or is it an accident? I was told today that it was three parts of the pipeline are blown up, um, not just one. It looks like it has been done by deliberately by one party, which we don't know yet. The investigations are going on. So imagine this. We're going to an energy crisis in Europe like never seen before. The growth engine of Germany, the economy, can't evolve if there is no energy. Uh, German homes, and we're talking millions of homes, will have no gas. 50% of German homes are firing up gas to heat their homes. 50%. That's a 90 million people country. You can imagine the pressure, the socioeconomic pressure, right? And the politicians who are in charge in Europe, I'm sorry to say, they have no clue what's going on. They, they should stabilize the situation immediately, and be proactive, and, and, and they should find a way again to negotiate, to talk, not to antagonize and threaten. Uh, this winding down of the business in Europe will have, has now in the winter, severe consequences for the public, for the citizens, because there's no energy for them to survive. Well, they will survive, but they can't buy, pay the bills anymore because there is no energy. Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's an extreme energy dependence of Europe on Russia. Yeah. And so it seems like Putin has just played that hand effectively. And yeah. I have to, I have to be clear on this. Uh, Putin did not play the card. He was played on. Mm. The West, the West has imposed eight thousand sanctions on Russia. Eight thousand. Mm. Imagine the problems started with the spare parts and the maintenance of Nord Stream One, the first pipeline that was still pumping gas. Because those turbines are from Germany and Canada. They are now under the sanctions regime and they cannot be transferred to Russia because it's illegal. <laughs> Those sanctions came from the West. So they shot themselves in both kneecaps 
and they try to walk. You can't walk if your kneecaps are shot. You you you'll be on the floor. Um, he didn't play the card. He's doing everything by the book. He wants to be seen. The Kremlin wants to be seen as a reliable energy supplier. But since last night, even if Europe wanted to open the new pipeline, it's impossible. It blew up last night or you know, over, over this morning. We don't know exactly when. Um, now we have a real crisis. As you said, some military strategists cut off the retreat so that the front has no other option than to fight harder to break through. Uh, economically speaking, this has happened last night by sabotaging the second pipeline, which was brand new, ready to operate. Uh, it can't anymore. You must imagine the gas is now coming in bubbles out of the sea in front of, in front of Sweden. The Swedish um, authorities have requested that aircraft cannot fly below 1,000 meters, 3,000 feet, because they fear if there's an explosion that an aircraft could be hit by the shockwave of the tremendous amount of gas that's flowing out of that pipeline. So you mentioned it before. They have cut off through the sabotage, whoever it was, the retreat economically of the sanctions front. So Putin did not play the, the threat, uh, the card, and said, if you don't do this, I will do that. He didn't do it. He's doing it by the book at the moment. Uh, right now, he has no option anyway, because both pipelines are defunct. One mm. is technically defunct through maintenance problems, and the other one is defunct because it blew up uh, last night. If you had to speculate about who inflicted that damage on the pipeline, who, which side had the incentive to do that? Because it seems like Putin uh, had incentive to at least have the option to sell the energy. He wouldn't want to take that away from himself. Well, it's not the money uh, with Putin. It's not the money. Of course, it's money. Of course, it's revenues. But uh, again, the, the Kremlin wants to be seen worldwide as a reliable supplier. He mm. can't be anymore. The interest is in the West. As you said, before we repeat that, you cut off economically the retreat. There is no negotiation possible at all. Even if Russia would offer it for free, they ca you can't take it because the transport mechanism has collapsed completely. All right. So uh, the, I, I suspect, and uh, now I'm speculating. That's just my gut feel. I have no information. I, I'm not privy to any information that the investigative committees are doing on both sides. But speaking about uh, who benefits key bono in Latin, uh, it would be the West. It could have been an American operation. It could have been a British operation or a combined NATO operation to blow up three parts at the same time. It's not just one part that could be fractured. It is three separate parts at the same time looks like sabotage russia would do it would be stupid because now the negotiation card is out of the window right so there is no more discussion about gas from the russian side because it's impossible to deliver it uh very embarrassing for everybody and especially now the winter is coming it's getting cold outside here uh, you know 
uh, people have to start heating. So uh, if I speculate, you ask me the question, who would benefit in this whole situation geopolitically right now, militarily, economically, well, economically not benefiting mm. is probably America or, or the banks, the big banks, mm. because they are the ones trading that stuff. And they don't like long-term contracts because if there's long-term contracts between nations, there's no volatility. Right. The banks want to trade volatility to make money. So these are the factors I see that play into this. Yeah, man. It's, it's scary. Yeah, scary. Just fascinating to think through the, the motives and the game theory behind it all. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. That's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. <laughs> And I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy-to-use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So, go to wasabiwallet.io today to download this state-of-the-art wallet software. Now, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Pacific Bitcoin Conference, brought to you by Swan. Now, this is going to be a two-day event in Los Angeles, November 10th and 11th, 2022. And if you haven't been to a Bitcoin conference yet, I highly recommend it as there really is no better way to get integrated into the Bitcoin community. Speakers announced so far include Michael Saylor, Lynn Alden, uh, many others. I'll be speaking as well. Uh, Michael Saylor is even quoted as saying, this is going to be the event of the year. So you definitely don't want to miss it. Uh, so go to PacificBitcoin.com and use discount code BREEDLOVE to get your tickets today. Now, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Bitcoin Conference 2023. This is going to be a three-day event held May 18th through 20th, 2023 in Miami, Florida. This is going to be the biggest Bitcoin event of the year, and the past two years in Miami have been simply amazing. Speakers already announced for 2023 include Michael Saylor, Alex Gladstein, Corey Clipston, and many others. Last year, we did a 10 million sats giveaway specifically for this event, and we're going to do it again this year. So to get discounted tickets and enter for a chance to win 10 million sats, go to b.tc slash conference slash 2023 and use discount code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Masterworks. 
Masterworks gives you access to the fine art market at more affordable price points. They do this by offering you fractional shares in their $500 million portfolio of fine art. Now, fine art is an alternative asset class, and historically, it's been a great performer and a really good hedge against inflation. Most investors typically hold anywhere from 2 to 10% of their assets in an asset like fine art. To sign up or learn more, go to masterworks.com and use promo code BREEDLOVE. Now, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. Yeah, there's one other thing that, uh, sorry, I mentioned this earlier, the Snowden citizenship. What yes. are your thoughts yeah. on Snowden is a phenomena. Um, Snowden came to Russia by accident, serendipity. Snowden was in Hong Kong. He wanted to flee to a Latin American country on his American passport. And the flight went transiting through Moscow. When the, the, when the, when the CIA and NSA understood that he left Hong Kong in flight, they canceled his American passport. So he arrived in Moscow without a passport, without a nationality, and he was stuck in the transit area for many, many days. Now, freelance lawyers and, and uh, good people in Moscow helped him to obtain a visa and that he could exit the airport into Moscow. Putin probably said, my God, now we have Snowden, Edward Snowden in our country, it's not our man. You know, everybody will think that he's an agent of Russia. But it was a pure, from Snowden's perspective in Russia, it was an accident. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a few years now, almost 10 years um, back when this happened. Uh, he obtained the Russian citizenship through normal legal procedure. If Russia would be behind it, they would have given him the passport on Monday morning and say, okay, welcome back. Here's your passport. Here's your new life. Or, you know, you go to retirement. It was not the case. He's very smart. He's very intelligent, very proficient in, in his job in IT. And he's working, what I was told, in a very big conglomerate in IT, making a good living. Um, he, 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 he has a private life and he has a professional life. Um, that uh, helps helps him to survive and, and make money. And yeah, of course, there is also a emotional component that's very sad. He has friends and family or family and friends in the US. They can only come and see him. But even now, you know, the situation doesn't allow them to travel uh, at all. So he's, he's caught. But I think he's, little, he's a little hero for me because he exposed the snooping on citizens 
civilians by the information machine, the NSA, and other services. So he's done humanity a service revealing that this is happening. Before him, we had no clue that this is happening. We suspected it, but he delivered proof that this thought is true. So that's Edward Snowden's story. And why why the citizenship? Was this a long time coming for him in Russia? And we're just now seeing it? Or was there was there something to do with the timing of the conflict and his uh, provision of the Russian citizenship? No. Um, if you want to apply for Russian citizenship, you have to go through a process. Like in America, like in Switzerland here, it takes years from application until you get it. Depends on your, you must have a job, you must be self-sufficient and all these things. Um, I think from, from what I what I know, I don't know him personally. I think he obtained it again through a lengthy process. And the timing of it has nothing to do, in my view, with the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Why? Because he's not a military person at all. You have other people who got Russian passports like um uh, like French actor Depardieu, who got it because he wants to tax through Russia, because Russia has a very good tax regime of a flat rate tax of 13%. One <laughs> three. So, you know, that's that's where this comes in. Uh, I think he got it legally through due process, and it helps him to, to further establish his life there. Yeah. It's wonderful. I mean, I'm, yeah, it's good to see a guy like that that really stuck his neck out for freedom, um, yeah, establishing himself and and building a life, yeah, away from his family. That's you know, right. I I I I I don't know what he must have gone through, being separated from his private and family life, mm. but here he is. He's still alive and he's he's working. Uh, I don't know which company he works for, but I was told that he's making good money. Uh, he is a, has a senior position in his field of speciality. Mm. Yeah. It's great to hear. Um, yeah. Anything else on this in this geopolitical Ukraine-Russia warfare topic to round out the discussion before we move on? Yeah, I think, uh, interestingly enough, we had the Chinese that are backtracking a bit the chinese don't want trouble they don't want sanctions i think the chinese want stability i think putin is a bit disappointed by this because he thought that the chinese will be hand in hand shoulder to shoulder in this conflict with russia they are not they want stability uh for china a lot is at stake and they prefer stability in my view over conflict or sanctions. Now, of course, if sanctions would happen between America, EU, and China, for instance, it will be disastrous for both, for China, because they are the factory of the world, and the buyers of the products, the West. So that's one dimension we have to always look at as well. How is Asia reacting? You know, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, on that, that's a great point. And on that topic, actually, this is one of the things I wanted to ask about. Yeah. The 
consequences of the Russian central bank foreign reserve freeze. Uh, because I know China had to have been paying attention to that as someone that holds. I think Russia's central bank was holding to the tune around $600 billion in foreign reserve assets that upon invasion of Ukraine were frozen. I don't think they've been confiscated officially. They've just been frozen uh, for yeah. the time being. China holds way more than that. Yes. With the West, uh, I'm not sure exactly how much more, but probably at least double. Um, I'm sure they're concerned that at the push of a button, those assets can be frozen in in times of discord. Let's say exactly what what are the consequences of that in your estimation? Is I'm sure China's paying attention. What are they thinking as a result of this? And I think this is probably a good segue into Bitcoin too. Uh, definitely highlights uh, the value of money that cannot be frozen or confiscated yes uh it came to a big shock of course to everybody uh and other nations are looking at this as an example as a warning that this can happen to them as well okay um from that perspective uh people are aware that in case of conflict and in case they're on the wrong side of the game that this, this can happen to them as well. Uh, confiscating money is nasty and it destroys trust completely. Uh, so in, in this geopolitical move to conclude that about Ukraine a bit, to sum it up, my thought is that the US and NATO have the, and UK have decided to break Russia and to slice it up into different regions to take the territory. This is the reason why the international law has been unhinged by the West when it comes to the Russian Federation at the moment. Okay. Um, civil rights are abused. Journalists uh, get monitors who write the wrong thing in the West. So this is a major problem for many people to observe, and it's not good for for stability. It's 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 really bad because that's from the rhetoric that I can see and the actions I can see from the West. They are going full power ahead. Okay, um, that's why I'm advocating for peace. It cannot be that we have a nuclear war excuse me, for Ukraine. This cannot be possible. The mutual destruction is enormous. Uh, the Russians at least have a, a land that is big enough. Some of the some of the people can move east far, far away. The states, from that perspective, are not big enough because it will be contaminated everywhere. And Europe will be completely wiped out because we have German bases in Rammstein, near Frankfurt, uh, this cannot happen. It must be peace that wins over war. So the unhinging of the law is, is a big problem. The second problem is the West advocates a unipolar world that goes into later our discussion about the WEF. Unipolar world, rules-based, 
The question is who makes the rules? Mm -hmm. I prefer a multipolar world where everybody has uh, international law, the same book to refer to, and the judges have the same book to make their judgments. So that unipolar world, this is the, the rules-based order post-Bretton Woods 1944. Yeah. But that freezing of russian central bank assets essentially shattered the world into a multipolar world yes right. the russians are pushed the russians and the chinese are pushing for that now right and so what are the fault what are the knock-on effects of that i mean this is obviously disruptive to global trade um i'm sure it's going to be contributing to inflation right we just have less products and services coming to market uh against yeah. the backdrop of fiat currency supply expansion so what what else do you see in the wake of that well it will we have different groupings now you see the eu is the eu it's not very big actually but if you look at brics brazil russia india china south africa look at the shanghai cooperation organization sco Russia, China, Kazakhstan, which is the fifth largest resource country in the world, by the way, oil and gas and minerals and, you know, plutonium, uh, uranium, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, if you look at those trends, you'll find out that the multipolar system has more to offer for partners because they can interact. If you want to say it's like Bitcoin, they are decentralized. Mm interacting with each other as opposed to again a unipolar rules-based world which is again the plan of the WEF WEF mm. is the unipolar rules-based global government mm. to rule over the citizens of the world that in my view cannot happen as a freedom fighter <laughs> this this is the end of humanity it's ens enslavement. And that's where Bitcoin comes into place because we have inflation now. Uh, a year ago, people said, oh, inflation is good for Bitcoin price. And yes, at the beginning, when inflation started, you saw the Bitcoin price shooting up, right? Mm -hmm. And it was promoted as a store of value, inflation hedge. All the podcasts were full of it. And now we have inflation. We have severe inflation galloping. and the Fed and the central banks in Europe are, are slow. They are not fast enough, in my view, to counter that effect. They're going, in my view, too slow because politically it's, it's very difficult to sell a crushing economy. And we have midterm elections in the US, which are in a, in a few weeks uh, in America. Uh, you know, all these things play in together. So... Talk about Bitcoin is depressed. The price is depressed because uh, we had some events like Terra Luna, which were disastrous for the market because people could not believe that something goes to zero, mm. which was promoted as a hedge and promoted as a safe asset because of algorithms. Uh, mm. It was not. It failed. It, the, the, the engineering was wrong. It completely failed. So novices got afraid they said they said 
it could happen to this mm. not knowing not knowing enough about bitcoin of course mm. um uh, that's why in my view we have a depressed price scenario for bitcoin and we have inflation galloping uh like crazy at the moment mm. yeah i, I always I, people get a little bit overzealous in my opinion of trying to map current news cycle or current um, macro movements to present price as if they map one-to-one -one. like if news comes out today the price directly reflects it or if inflation prints today that bitcoin's price should go up in tandem with inflation and i always caution people that that's just not in accordance with my study of monetary history whatsoever actually and in fact things get more volatile as the currency gets less meaningful right as the currency is inflated prices just don't go up in some linear fashion they, they go way up way down they become much more volatile yeah um leading to the ultimate collapse of the currency yeah and my, my case study there is you just go look at the gold price during the the hyperinflation in the Weimar Republic, right? It would it, the price would surge and then it would collapse 80, 90 percent, and the cycle would repeat before finally, um, the the currency of the Weimar Republic, which I think was the mark, the rice mark, the right that's right, was basically um, printed into worthlessness. Correct. So like it's Zimbabwe. Yeah, it's not a one-for-one -one linear progression. It's it's amp increasing amplitude, increasing volatility before ultimate currency collapse tends to be the pattern. Um, so yeah, I, you know, Bitcoin obviously just fits right in there as another yeah. gold-like asset. I would expect uh -huh. it to be all over the place in the years ahead before finally, you know, uh, as I. I've said this before. I think when all the dust finally settles, it's the only money, if not the only economic institution left standing. Correct. Uh, it's a good thing to talk about gold. The problem with gold is very simple. The mechanics of it are very simple to understand. And you, you, you are very proficient in this even more than I am, I think. But the way I see it is price of gold goes up. What happens? The gold miners dump more gold on the market. <laughs> there is a, there's still a lot of gold in the ground on this planet. That's the point. Bitcoin is hard or capped 21 million pieces. That's it. And we have 19 million already in circulation. And the mining uh, every four years, the halving process makes it deflationary. So these were my objectives. Uh, I discovered it by serendipity. People went crazy in 16, 17. All of a sudden, I read about Bitcoin going through the roof. I start to look at charts. They were really nice. Every morning you wake up, you had a nice news. It was higher and higher and higher until then it got corrected in the beginning of 2018 um, because it went up too fast in my view. But gold is a great value don't get me wrong but uh to save in gold is a waste of money and time i believe completely knowing the banking world i still don't understand why central banks and governments are hoarding gold as opposed to bitcoin because bitcoin for me and i'm not a mathematician but bitcoin for me is the complete 
freedom. You know, beforehand, I was in legacy assets, like most of us, in stocks, in bonds, in some options. What did we have? We had constant headache to read the news, the corporate news. We had constant headache about management risk. A CEO dies or a CEO leaves to the competition. We had constant problems of regulatory issues constantly. A corporation like Nestle or Johnson & Johnson or Bombardier in Canada, they're literally flying, navigating through a minefield of regulatory problems, management problems, corporate problems, competition problems, market problems. And when I was a banker, I always told my people, there's two things you have to remember. We don't take quality risks. We can take market risk. Because markets, we can analyze, we, we, we make a decision. Sometimes we fail, of course. But if the quality risk is exposed, and if we, if we are exposed, sorry, to uh, quality risks, nothing can help us. Even a good market cannot help you. So Bitcoin, when Bitcoin came into my life and my family, we made a drastic decision. We sold absolutely everything. And everything, 100% went into Bitcoin. Not to make money overnight in one day or a year. It was like Michael Saylor's uh, is a big for me, a leading light in this market. Um, you got to think long term. You got to think, I, I would say 10 years is a good, in my view, a very good time frame to look at Bitcoin. Okay. Uh, we don't know if it's going to go up or down in the next year or the same year. There's plenty, you know, you know that the chartists and people have the charts and they predict on Monday morning that it's going to go up tomorrow. And what happens? It goes down. <laughs> or, or vice versa. That's Bitcoin. That's the nature of the beast. But Bitcoin is mathematically beautiful because it's perfect. It's autark. It's independent. It's decentralized. And there's no company behind it, no CEO behind it, no government behind it. It's beautiful. That's all I can say. Hmm. Knowing, knowing, doing myself, producing debt for governments all my life, you know, there's nothing better that 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 can happen to us. And I think, you know, if it's $20,000 or $18,000 now, I don't know what the screen is. I don't look at it every day. Um, I don't really care. I'm very confident, and my family is, that in 10 years' time, will be fine with this investment. And the, the target for us is not to sell in 10 years, but for us, the horizon is 10 years, to sail to the horizon hmm. and to keep the focus on that horizon. Uh, of course, we have other income. We are lucky, uh, fiat income, to support this strategy. Of hmm. course, I don't advocate everybody to put 100% into Bitcoin if you can't afford it. Only put that money into Bitcoin that you can afford to put into to live through difficult periods like we're going through now. Mm. Adjustments. It's a pure adjustments. I, you know, when the news comes out that the Fed stops hiking, we're going to have a firework on the stock market and Bitcoin. Mm. And Bitcoin will outpace, in my view, the stock market very fast.
Yeah, I agree with a lot of that. I can relate to the similar process of discovering Bitcoin, learning more about it. And as my conviction deepened, my portfolio more and more reflected that, right? I was selling more and more assets to just buy more and more Bitcoin. And yeah, today that's, yeah, it's essentially it as I use Bitcoin as savings um, and try to stay profitable, you know, in all my, my work and my businesses, and then just gradually convert yeah. time. And I, I, you know, it's, it's been quite remarkable. I, I didn't realize how scattered my mind was before, you know, yeah. you know, looking Reading at all, all the research reports every morning. <laughs> yeah. And you're always worried about the market and the news and, you know, all the forms of risk that you, you enumerated just sort of consume, you know, consume your mind space a lot, but being in something like Bitcoin with the deep conviction, obviously in the asset that I've built up over time, it's very liberating. You know, there's a lot of peace of mind that comes with it. Absolutely. And you see, uh, I always warn my, my friends. I say, they say, oh, crypto, the 19,000, 20,000. This token is great. It made 10% yesterday. This one is great. I said, follow the SEC. Mm -hmm. And I said, we had a few, a few weeks ago the news. It's been decided. Bitcoin is going to the CFTC. That for me was huge news. It's a commodity. That's where it belongs. I cannot say the same thing about Ethereum where we have a person behind it and a foundation and a company that changed the rules as they go or other tokens. I don't want to just talk about Ethereum, which are, Gensler repeats that every time, Chairman Gensler, unregistered securities. Who is behind the tokens? It's human beings who want your money in their pockets. Mm -hmm. And they're selling you a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then the SEC will come, wait, the law says only bank licenses can issue securities. Do you have a bank license? The answer is no. Well, we shut you down. Mm -hmm. And this will come. It will come. I think the SEC is overworked. I think Gensler is doing a tremendous job. He's understaffed, I think. Because they have to deal with 20,000 or 19,999 tokens out there and intermediaries and companies. Some of them are offshore in BVI or Cayman or Hong Kong or, you know, they have a gigantic work to clean up the system. But I tell my friends, it will happen. I don't know if it's happening next week or in two years. But when it happens, it's like when empires collapse. If empires collapse, most people have two things. They're surprised and they're ruined. Mm. With Bitcoin, I know it's autark. It's been decided as a commodity in the United States, which in my view, regulatory-wise, is leading the pack. And Switzerland too is, is quite comfortable for Bitcoin owners because we have no tax on it here. We have zero tax on capital gain or Bitcoin. Well, that's, that's definitely a huge advantage. And yeah, it's a gradually then suddenly effect, just like hyperinflation itself. Um, you know, what's the old quote that there's decades where nothing happens and then weeks where decades happen, something like that. It's, yep. but yeah, the, the key point for, you know, general 
audience is just treat it like a savings account, not a checking account. And I think you'll be okay. <laughs> I think so too. It's a safe bet. If you look at it from this perspective, um, and then people say, oh, it's too dangerous to put all your eggs in one basket. You should diversify your risk. Mm -hmm. Well, if I diversify this diversify strategy to back to bonds and stocks and Bitcoin and Ethereum and stuff like that, I miss the purpose of Bitcoin. Uh, and, and you're you're <laughs> you're re-exposing yourself to all those risks that exactly. you the Bitcoin to get out of. Exactly. Um, I tell all my friends now is the time to change the horse. Mm -hmm. They say, "Oh, stuff went down, and everything went down equally. Just change the horse and wait." Right. I liked uh, Sailor had a comment about diversification in crypto assets he said that just means you're selling the winner to buy the losers yes and um yeah it's funny it's a lot of people have accused bitcoin of being a pump and dump scheme but when you really get into the rabbit hole right and you start to understand the nature of money the history of money the desired properties of money you, I think you come to this realization that Bitcoin simply cannot be a pump and dump scheme because there's no better asset to dump it into. Correct. And so it's just, it's a pump scheme. It just, it just goes up. And yeah, precisely. And the, the Ponzi scheme out there is fiat. Right. <laughs> it's a promise on a piece of paper. We'll give you, we'll pay. This is worth nothing. Bitcoin has proof of work. There's a reason for that. It's like a worker. I, I pay a worker here in the street here in Lucerne to dig a hole in 10 hours. I want to see the hole. Mm -hmm. And they do the hole. I inspect it. It's done. Well, I pay them. Proof of work. I can see it. It happened. They did the work. Mm -hmm. Proof of stack is inventing bookkeeping again. You know, we go back to the corporate world, which failed, by the way. Yes. We can talk about Swiss Air later, about you know Swiss Airline, how they failed. Mm. But by, with Bitcoin, we have a proof-of-work concept, which is the basis, in my view, for humanity to evolve. If you work hard, you, have, you, 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 you receive for hard work more. Yes. Then if you if you don't do the hole, you, you 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 sit there and you wait the whole day, and the boss comes and says the hole is not done. I'm not paying you. Mm -hmm. It's very simple to understand. I don't have to be a mathematician to understand that. It is really, it is really simple in a lot of ways, and it's taking us back to the principles underlying gold. Right, that was that's what gold was. Gold was a proof of work money, and then we built this proof of stake institution on top of it called the central bank yeah and everywhere we have built that proof of stake institution things have gotten really bad yes so um look at the euro now look at the euro look at the british pound what happened last week 22 mm percent -hmm. drawdown is that right yeah and we have almost a parity to the dollar i was working in london in the 90s it was two 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 dollars fourteen two fifteen right that was 1990. So 30 years later, I'm 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 down to one point something. Can you imagine how much wealth has been destroyed? 
right. people save money 30 years and they wake up now and it's gone down down by half yeah, yeah. And there's so something all, all the work they did in the past 30 years sorry to say was for nothing right i feel yeah. bad for those people really yeah it is bleak but man just open a damn history book of money Saifedan has in my view done a, a fantastic work i love his book the bitcoin standard and the fiat standard it's most revealing I, I i recommend everybody out there who gets into this business of bitcoin to read those two books to invest the time you have to invest it's a, another proof of work you've got to read those books to understand and if you don't understand it then ask a friend who understands to coach you and to 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 yeah to coach you to to help you understand but we are in this fort right now with humanity currencies are failing overspending has happened is happening constantly i always say inflation is a result of bad governance and no accountability why do governments spend so much money it's not their money <laughs> that's right, right. If I dig a hole the whole day to earn a two hundred dollars in the evening, I I I think very carefully how to spend that money, mm -hmm. you know, and to save if I can. So, right now that goes back to Ukraine and the war and all these things. Mm. We are in a big stress right now, in a very big stress situation. The world is in a stress situation. Yeah. And that's why I go back to China and India, they prefer right now to have stability. I mean, those two countries are almost 3 billion people. Who is the EU compared to China and, and, uh, and India, right? In terms of people, hmm. of lives, of families, of, 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 of socioeconomic existence. Mm. What's the EU going to do? You had elections yesterday in Italy, two days ago. Mrs. Meloni is tagged now, Mussolini daughter, has won the elections. And you have Mrs. von der Leyen, who threatened a few days ago a democratic process in Italy and said, if you don't behave, we have tools for you. It reminds me of a German movie, old movie, where the torture victim is on a on a on a on a on a rack mm. and the doctor comes with a toolbox to torture them with teeth or you know stuff like that mm. where are we where have we gone this is absolutely terrible what's going on right now yeah really really is so i think it's safe to say you and i are both very long bitcoin um very optimistic about its future yeah and you have a, obviously an extensive background in um, government finance, government advisory, let's say. How, and I know this is a big question, so feel free to use broad strokes. How do you see government bonds and financing changing as the result of Bitcoin succeeding? And when I say Bitcoin succeeding, I mean, you know, massively succeeding, say becoming a $100 trillion asset. 
Um, to what extent does that diminish or or change government's ability to to raise capital via bonds and, and other debt-based vehicles? Yeah. Look, the bond market is a fiat market. Um, uh, I run the similar risks again that we talked about. I run country risk. If you talk about nations, right? Country risk, which means ratings that change, economic risk, political risks, all kinds of things that can happen to a country. We saw it happening in Mexico. We saw it happening in Argentina. We saw it happening in Greece. Um, failures. We saw cross default. Every bond documentation has a clause called, and you know that you've been a hedge fund trader, cross default, <laughs> which means if an issue like GMAC fails on one payment on one bond, everything is called. Mm -hmm. technically everything is called at the same moment um, if people discover bitcoin as a means of store of value and raising money with bitcoin like El Salvador is planning to do right now the markets are not favorable but I think when the markets come back and they will come back for bitcoin El Salvador will do it the, the volcano bonds mm. um what better instrument do I have? I don't have a better instrument. The bond markets are so leveraged, you know that, and they are exposed from Monday till Friday, and things can happen over the weekend, and you wake up on Monday morning, and your bond is gone, is finished. I remember when it happened in the Asian crisis 97, a few years back from now. <laughs> I was in my office on a Monday morning, and the phone rang, the desk phone in my office. I was at Dresdner Bank, a director of the bank, and uh, a management a director of the management board. And I had the central bank director of Greece, the Hellenic Republic, on the phone. He said, everything is red. Everything is going down. We're exposed to this uh, knock-on effect by Korea and Asia. I need a billion Deutschmarks at that time still was Deutschmarks. I said, thank you very much for waking me up. I mean, not waking me up, but giving me a Monday morning call, asking me in a, in a red market scenario for a billion Deutschmarks off the cuff. <laughs> I had only one solution. It had to be done through communication to the public that we are doing this. And I decided to do it. The FT commended it as, as, as bold and daring after the deal. Um, they wanted a five-year note, a billion Deutschmarks. Um, the, the spread, if I remember co correctly, of Greece was about 70 basis points above Libor, 70 basis points. And they wanted to raise the money at 37 or 38 basis points, the pre-crisis level. I told him firsthand, Spiros, his name was Spiros, Papa Nicolaou. I said, forget it. Everybody goes to the screen. Your spread is at 70 over LIBOR. And you want half of that, the pre-crisis level. I mean, I better pricing, better all-in costs in a, in, a, in a massacre. When I thought about it, I, I said, let's lose the press. So I went to Reuters 
and we we decided to do it with the condition that we can can convince the the public about the following thing we said the hellenic republic is a eu member european member since 1981 and it's inconceivable at the time then that the eu will drop greece okay let it default since we talk about default risk it it worked <laughs> The headline was Dresdner Bank is issuing a billion Deutschmarks at 37.5 basis points over LIBOR for the Hellenic Republic. It worked. It was magic. The bond was sold out the same day. In fact, they called again if they can increase it to 1.25 billion Deutschmarks. And we increased the next day to 1.25 billion Deutschmarks. That was then. Things were a bit slower than today. Later, a few years back now, you saw what happened to Greece. And you saw the draconian measures they had to implement, the austerity measures. Why? Because the European Commission dictated them what to do. And if they don't behave, they'll pull the rug. <laughs> so in government bond markets today, they're negative yielding assets. Who's going to put money in them? We have uh, almost the World War III happening right now, right? Um, again, I have a mountain of risk in the bond markets, over leveraged by trillions. <laughs> and I have Bitcoin, okay? Which has all the way to go to eat into the gold markets, to eat into the bond markets, to, to, to absorb all the other markets. Why does Bitcoin will and is constantly progressing, sometimes a bit better, sometimes a bit less. But it's autark. Let's not forget that. Mm. <laughs> it's completely independent. I have no credit risk, sovereign risk, market risk. Well, market risk, yes. If you speculate on Bitcoin, you have market risk. If you trade it, you have market risk. But if you don't, you save it for 10 years, you don't have. You ignore it. It used to be safe to be in the bond markets, right? 20, 30 years ago, you buy a government bond, you're fine, you had your yield, you're, you know. But we're past that process. I think the bond markets are over leveraged. They are totally unsafe and they're negative yielding assets. Why would you put, put money in there? I've got inflation on the gallop, uh, galloping. I'm not going to do it. Mm -hmm. But the banks are still pushing it. They're still printing bonds. The governments are printing bonds. I mean, look at the U.S. debt. Where's it now? 30, 30, 30 trillion? That sounds about right. I think it's somewhere Roughly? 130% neighborhood of GDP. GDP Correct. 2020. Correct. So, yeah. Correct. Do you think I get a mortgage? If I go to the bank tomorrow morning right here and say I want a mortgage, I'm spending 130 of, of 100? <laughs> no we like give money to some well a friend i'll give money i say here's thousand dollars i don't pay me back i help you mm. but will i loan money from my own family to this person or family telling me that they're overspending constantly i will send them to a course how to limit spending and how to learn how to save mm. <laughs> that's a good like god jesus said i don't give you the fish but i'll teach you how to fish mm. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know 
go back to biblical times. Um, no, bond markets are, are they have been great in the 90s when I was at work. Emerging markets, they were growing fast. They were evolving fast. The infrastructure was built newly. Um, great outlooks, okay? But today, wherever you look, where do you have a great outlook? No more. Yeah, even with U.S. treasuries, which no. are considered to be, uh, when I, coming up through college, they actually called this, it's called the risk-free rate, right? You get the rate of return on a U.S. government bond, and it's presumed to be risk-free, a risk-free return, because the U.S. government has the monopoly on currency production, so they can just print new units of currency, new dollars, yeah. pay the bond. So long as the so long as the legal monopoly of the central bank is preserved, then you effectively have no um, default risk. Was the presumption? Yeah. But I don't, you know, in a post-Bitcoin world. I don't think that presumption holds anymore. No, it because doesn't. you know the. I don't know. People have people have an option. People aren't forced into treasuries or currencies as a monetary store value, right? right? Um, or you're not forced into commodities and and equities even as an alternative store value. You now have something that. Uh, as effectively perfected the properties of of a monetary store value. So I just, I feel like in the long run, as Bitcoin succeeds, it actually heightens the default risk of even U.S. Treasury bonds. Yes, of course, of course it does. And you know the the spending mechanism, the overspending is it's just crazy what's going on. You know, not just in America, even Switzerland now we have problems mm. with COVID and stuff. We we were supposed to have no debt, but now we have debt. Switzerland, you know, one of the richest countries in the world, voted last week, richest country in the world, highest per capita income. We're going the wrong way. Mm. And the government, sorry, the government is blind. And the, the good thing about Switzerland is that the Swiss Central Bank will not issue a Swiss digital currency. It's been decided. They're not going to do it, which is great news. Mm. But the EU, as you know, the ECB is pushing for that. And that means a total uh, blunder on the people. It's stealing value from the people. And it will force people to be controlled by the government. They will see every penny where it's going to, how you spend it, how you're receiving it. You have no more privacy on your money. You have not any privacy left. That's it. It's the end. Which is now crazy. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's that's what's going to happen. The central bank currencies, the digital currencies, are a control mechanism. Think about it. Completely controlling people, mm. and they on Monday morning they say, "Oh, Pascal, we don't like your behavior in the politics. Now you cannot fly to America. You cannot buy an aircraft ticket." Uh, airline ticket because we, we we will not allow you to spend for airlines on Tuesday morning. That's it. It's programmable money, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a bit like structured finance, if you remember. Structured finance is great if you apply it to stabilize something, to to really save something, a, a entity or 
you know, you, structured finance is fantastic, mm -hmm. mathematics, but most banks have abused it and destroyed value with it. And I see the same thing happening with the central bank currencies coming, the digital currency, sorry. Uh, very, very bad outlook for humanity. Mm. And that's where Bitcoin comes in, our friend, <laughs> <laughs> which is autark, independent, decentralized. One country will ba ban it. It will move elsewhere. Mm. Okay, it's clear that Madame Lagarde who was convicted yesterday or today, by the way, for, for receiving money, um, not punished, funny enough, but she's running the ECB right now. <laughs> and she hates Bitcoin. She hates the whole topic. She is a hater. Um, that's not a good basis for running an economic monster like the ECB. Look where the euro is going. It's a dying currency. Hmm. It's a dying currency. Yeah, the, I mean, the entire concept of a central bank digital currency, and to your point, it's taking the private out of private property. Correct. And if you if you can't have privacy over your wealth, full control over your wealth, full control of your assets, that's what that's the entire point of ownership, right? To own something, to have full control over it. And Correct. this is clearly a regression of potentially really epic proportions. You're absolutely right. That goes back to the WF. The WEF agenda is, this, Klaus Schwab said it publicly, you own nothing and you'll be happy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> He's not even hiding it anymore. So the digital central bank digital currencies combined with that uh, Ideology is a disaster for humanity, completely. Private ownership is the last resort of privacy. Yes. You know, data already is not private anymore. We know that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but it's still, we have, in Switzerland, we have a bank secrecy. Still, we have it, by the way, um, where it's a very private matter to, to find out uh, to to be exposed of somebody else finding out how much money or how much how not how much money you have mm -hmm. it's a private affair it's like like my wife and me we have we're a couple we we share things and it's private i don't want any government to look into our marriage it's none of their business it's mm -hmm. our business we are living the marriage not the government for us and about the web a little anecdote my father was a co-founder of this <laughs> Mm. Um, in the late 70s it was called the Davos Economics Symposium with Klaus Schwab but it was different it was really meant to help developing countries my father was the chairman of the de developing nations back then and the meetings were 40-50 people in a, in a simple five star but in a simple hotel no grandiose pompous things and they were working in workshops for a week or two and they brought ministers from Africa, from the, from Asia, a lot of them, Arabs, uh, to talk to each other, how they can help each other. Later, my father had a, an argument with Klaus Schwab, and uh, he sidestepped and said, look, fly your kite, you want to grow this into the WEF? I don't agree with that. And he, my father left and wished him good luck. 
And now we have this monster called WEF, WEF, a, a real monster where politicians are part of it, the elitists are part of it, and they're trying to uh, establish mechanisms how to control the people. Hmm. It's it's just, it's happening. People have to wake up. That's why we're talking here. I hope the audience realizes that. This is not a joke. Hmm. Klaus Schwab and the, uh, I call them the gang, they're, they're very serious, serious, in a way serious. They are powerful people. Some of them are prime ministers, some of them are presidents, some of them are ministers, some of them are CEOs of big pharma, big food, big tech, etc., etc., etc. It's it's happening, and people got to protect privacy. That's where Bitcoin comes in. Hmm. Only Bitcoin and I know what we have of each other, <laughs> and it's the codex. So people say, "Oh, Pascal, how many bitcoins?" I said, "No, the codex is we never talk about how many bitcoins we have." Right. Also, to avoid jealousy in the community, I think it's important. I think the ethos is great of Bitcoiners to stick together and not to be jealous of each other. That jealousy destroys a lot of things, as we saw in history. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, that's where we are. And the agenda of the WEF is 2030. You know, it's not 2080. Everybody says, oh, I'll be dead by then. I don't care. It's happening in a few years. <laughs> hmm. We'll still be hopefully around, and we have to go through it. Terrible outlook. Well, yeah. And we have to resist, right? What is the old saying that evil happens when good men stand by and do nothing? So, yeah. um, How to resist is to intelligently park the wealth somewhere where you have absolute control and over your property. That's Bitcoin. Yeah. Exactly. Because I'm not working all my life to find out when I'm old and frail at 80 that I cannot afford the lifestyle anymore. I cannot afford the stake anymore. Uh, I worked all my life and I, I realized that inflation and mismanagement of governments has destroyed my wealth, my work. I can't afford to have that situation. Mm-hmm. Now you and I were young, dynamic still, strong, but look at our parents when they get older. They don't have the energy anymore to get up at six in the morning and work till 10 o'clock at night. They take it slowly. I already feel it slowing down personally. <laughs> <laughs> sure, it's going to keep going. Um, okay, I, I want to pivot. You know, you in preparing for this conversation, you shared with me this movie yeah. titled Grounding. Correct. Um, and it was, I, I think you were a producer on it. It was one of the yeah. most popular, best films in, in Swiss cinema. Yeah. Uh, and I think the the plot of that film is pertinent to what we're talking about today. So could you just t- tell us a little bit about this movie, Grounding, and how it relates to everything we've been discussing? It's a perfect example of how things can fail that were deemed never to fail. Swiss Air was the best airline for decades for 70 years, the best airline worldwide. It was a national stock. Every, not every citizen, but many citizens, most of them had Swiss Air stocks in their portfolio. It was a flying bank. And in the 90s, the management decided to expand, to gobble up other airlines, to 
become global, globalist. And that's where the mistake happened. They took up a lot of debt. They bought weak airlines, tried to integrate them into the fleet. It didn't work, right? We go back to corporate risk, regulatory risk, operational risks, all these things. It didn't work. They couldn't control the monster anymore. That's the short story of a long story. And the debt mountain grew to a level where the plane literally was too heavy and couldn't fly anymore. Hmm. And we had the banks controlling the accounts, two banks, the biggest ones, UBS and Credit Suisse, were the house banks of the airline. And we had a government which was supposed to secure airline traffic in the country by the constitution, Article 48 of the uh, um, air transport law, which says in, 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 terms, in, in, in times of crisis, the government must step in to ensure operational um, uh, integrity of the national airline. But everything went, went sour. We had 9-11. Groundings happened worldwide. Airspace, as you know, remember, was closed. Losses spiked. And the airlines suffered a great deal. Uh, Swiss Air went to the government and said, please give us a supporting loan or a guarantee for 300 million. We need that. No, today 300 million sounds like nothing. But at that time, it was a lot of money. Mm -hmm. uh, Swiss francs. And uh, the government said, no, we don't give you that money. Uh, UBS was a key player in the disaster of the demise of Swiss Air. And they engineered the grounding, which means the airline was so weak. You had such a great brand. Assets like Gate Courmet was the catering global catering company of Swiss Air. The catering company alone was worth $6 billion. Again, mm. at that time, a lot of money. Swiss Air Technics, the maintenance arm, the best in the world, global company, part of the Swiss Air Group, was worth at least $10, $10 billion. But when the, the bank sniffed the opportunity and said, wait a minute, we will weaken the airline, we'll force her to the ground, literally, make her collapse, we take the asset, reverse it into another airline, relaunch the asset, and take all the, the benefits. And that's what happened. Uh, the UBS engineered a default, complete mayhem, by not transferring money literally on the 2nd of October uh, 2001. Literally. The money didn't arrive on the account of Swissair. And the, the, the fuel supplier of the London flight in the morning said to the captain, I'm not giving you fuel anymore. The captain says, we have to, we're Swissair. No, for you, no fuel. So that was a domino effect. So one flight after the other got grounded. 18,000 passengers were stranded with no, with no flight. No compensation. There was no money. No compensation offered. That's it. It was destroyed completely. Uh, so it was a big scandal. In Swiss terms, big scandal. 40,000 people jobless in one day. $50 billion of damage to the economy. Again, today, 50 billion is like, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. but 50 billion Swiss francs of damage 
that time in the headlines of the papers, believe me, it was huge. Um, no help offered by anybody. The airline was grounded. I came to the to the rescue of that airline. I got Merrill Lynch. I was still uh, I was not working for them anymore in London, but I had my friends there. I said, "Can we restructure this?" Yes, we can. So in one month, we engineered under high pressure, unsolicited, a proposal which didn't cost the government a thing. We said, you give us a state guarantee, which is 25 years only. In 25 years, it will be triggered if the airline doesn't fly in 25 years. So mathematically speaking, a good proposal, right? The second thing was, we'll give you $12 billion now to restructure and refinance, to fly again, because Swissair was profitable. She cost in the morning 17 million Swiss francs to fly and brought home $21 million in the evening. So we had a free cash flow of three to four million Swiss francs a day. With that kind of cash flow, you can work. Mm. The bank didn't want it to happen. The government didn't want it to happen. Merrill Lynch, we got ignored. And the proposal was was binned. And then the, the, the thing collapsed completely and it was finished, gone. The shock in the, the, the economy and the shock in the, the, the public was huge. So that was 2001. In 2006, uh, sorry, 2004, I learned that the big producer was thinking of making a movie about this, this scandal. And I said, they don't have the documents. To make a script, to accuse a bank, to accuse a lawyer, to accuse a CEO, you need absolute proof of the principle of two sources, like a journalist. Because if in the, in the script, in the movie on screen, there's one mistake, they will shut down the movie. You go to court and you'll be sued and you'll be ruined. So we had to write a script that holds the water. And I got the documents. That's why I became producer. I got 80,000 secret confidential documents from courts, the airline, the banks. Also, board, board meeting protocols. So we wrote the script of the, of, of the film Grounding according to the evidence that we had in our possession. We had to write, write 18 versions of the book, 18 versions until we got it right. And I'm sitting in front of you today here, 2022, 20 years later, not one lawsuit came through our production office. Because they knew when they saw the movie, said, "Oh God, that's that's exactly what we said in the meetings." Hmm. You know, they had no chance. And what was the effect of it? It was mismanagement. It was uh, what do you call that? Megalo, megalo, megalo behavior. Megalomania. Small, uh, yes, a small airline of Switzerland wanted to become overnight a global airline, hmm. like the WEF, like the central bank digital currencies. Control the people. Global. Go global. You can hide books. You can do inventive, inventive bookkeeping. You own about 10 airlines. You know, you can shift around assets. Inventive bookkeeping, right? Look at the result. And the economies we're talking about, that's a good analogy, is happening right now as we see it. Look at England. Look at the EU. Look at the, the euro. Look at America. The debt mountains. The Fed is, is lost. They, and by the way, the Fed will continue to raise rates. They will. I believe they go to 
they don't care anymore. They want to make the middle class poor because the middle class carries the economics and the middle class is the biggest danger to a globalist approach. Hmm. You want to, if you want to control the people. France, by the way, has no more middle class. It's wiped out. You can go to statistics. It's wiped out. Hmm. Majority is poor, going from paycheck to paycheck to, to feed the family. Uh, and there's the super rich. And the elites, of course. Uh, that's it. I always say to people, if you have a small business, SME, a factory, a barbershop, a garage, you're an artist, art shop, you can tell people off. You can tell politicians to go and fly the kite if you don't like it because you're an employer. You you you, know, you pay taxes. You're, you get up at 9 o'clock or 6 o'clock. It's your decision. But if you work for Johnson & Johnson, Merrill Lynch, or whatever big company, conglomerate out there, you do not stick out your head. Hmm. You do the 9 to 5 job you don't say anything about politics, about corporate politics. You just don't want to stick out your head. If you stick out your neck, head, the risk is very high. You replace the Monday morning. Hmm. Like that. Boom. Hmm. Expandable. So go back to central bank digital money and the WEF. That's what their agenda is. And the ESG and then this woke woke movement, everything is coming together. Mm. It's scary. It really is scary. And we, we talked about much scarier things in the beginning about the war. Just to remind people, we are, I mean, the Cuba crisis looks like a children's game compared to what's going on right now in mm. Europe, right now. Uh, but on the economic front, what we discussed now, macro, to go back to Bitcoin, Bitcoin is the savior. It is the ultimate definition of property. It's the ultimate. Mm. I have it. I have it on my. If, if I want to, I have it on this phone. Mm. Could be a fifty dollar phone is enough. Yes. The why? Why do you say that? Why do you say that the Cuban Missile Crisis was like? child's child's play compared to what we're seeing now what is it because because i don't think people are taking it that seriously yet yes uh exactly the cuban missile crisis had one benefit over today they were operating back channels the americans had back channels and the russians had the soviets had back channels to talk i always tell people the biggest danger is if you stop talking to each other. Even big enemies, they must talk to each other, shake hands, talk, sit down, talk. Mm -hmm. Even if they have an argument, doesn't matter, talk. If you are incommunicado, like today, two nuclear superpowers don't talk to each other anymore. Then we have, what do we have? Misunderstandings. Mm -hmm. A misunderstanding can, can have a chain reaction of a nuclear war right now. And it's, by God, the worst arsenals that we have to think of are in existence today to seriously, seriously damage our planet, wipe out humanity on a big scale. They don't talk to each other. That's the problem. So 
one one person is cornered, as you know, we discussed that. Mr. Putin is and the Russians are they feel cornered more and more. Mm-hmm. And you have the West unhinging laws, international law. They said, Oh, we don't care. We just go in the one direction now. That's it. It's the end game. Yeah. That's why the Cuban Missile Crisis actually was about Berlin, not about Cuba. <laughs> it was the, the the Russians, the Soviets, who who wanted to have their territory in eastern Berlin, and uh, the missile crisis also was real. They were shipping missiles to Cuba. That is true, but it was not just Kennedy who said, "If you don't, if you cross that Rubicon, we will, you know, nuclearize you." Mm-hmm. Uh, it was about Berlin. There were back travel discussions happening at the same time. Hmm. Today we don't have that. There's no communication. And that makes it more dangerous. Just the lack of dialogue. Absolutely, makes sense. Um, That's the scary bit of today. In 2022, we are, and the, again, the arsenal is so much more. I'm sorry to say this. It's much more efficient. The uh, Russian missile will take one minute, 43 seconds to hit London. It's unthinkable. It's extremely, extremely concerning. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's these nuclear weapons are so dangerous. Yeah. In this geopolitical game. Yeah. Because if it only takes one play of that card. Yeah. To put the entire game at risk, right? Like the whole, yeah. you just you could set off a chain reaction. Take a take a house of cards. You take one card out, the whole thing collapses. Right. And think about this. I always tell this to people. Imagine the world. We sit down. We take China. We take America and Russia, and Africa. We tell the Russians, or the Russians and 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 the Africans are the resource bases. Right? And the Middle East, sorry, take them together. Resource based. The Asians, Chinese, and the Asian countries are the factory of the world. They produce, they're happy doing that, creates jobs. And the financialization is done by the Anglo Saxons in the West and Europe, if you want to say so, to share and to cooperate. We could feed every human being on this planet by doing that. Mm. Of course, not with the fiat system only. We need to have a bit more of this ingredient. Yeah. But think about that. There could be global peace. I was in a, in a, in a, in a lunch in London in 98. We had a lunch. I was invited to Westminster Parliament, the House of Lords, by Lord Johnson. He was in charge of the eastward expansion of the NATO. And our guest was Peter Schuster, at that time, the mayor of Kosice, the second largest city of Slovakia, a small country next to the Czech Republic. And he was a hopeful. He was a uh, running for presidency in 99. So it was a prelude. And we wanted to, uh, I was as a banker called in to, to discuss a few things on the economy, uh, you know, to brief him what could be done and not. And at the dessert, Lord Johnson said, oh, Mr. Schuster, Peter, when you become president, like this, he said, we want you to become NATO member. Hmm. And I said, that was not on the agenda. That was not on the agenda of today's lunch. And then uh, Peter Schuster 
his daughter was there too, and a translator asked the question, said, what do we have to do to become NATO members? Oh, it's very simple. We send you a fax. You fill it out with your hardware. And then we send you another fax. You fill out the hardware that we recommend, NATO hardware, that you must possess to become compliant with us. And then Schuster said, yeah. And I interjected. I said, wait a minute. Why don't we send the fax to Moscow at the same time? <laughs> what is NATO for? It's, it's there to fight Russia, right? Mm -hmm. um, it was very uncomfortable. But what I said was very disturbing for the host. There was a big silence in the room. And I was never invited back by this person for lunch or dinner or anything. <laughs> because mm -hmm. I suggested that we should make peace and stop this escalation and armament race. That we can work together. Uh, that was not very well welcomed, this comment. It was a disaster for me. <laughs> why is that? Why, why the resistance to to setting aside differences and working together towards peace? What is is it the profitability of warfare that yeah that some the, of these parties? The yeah, the military-industrial complex is a big driver in this. I I believe the White House is hugely financed through these kind of operations. Uh, don't forget, Russia also has a military-industrial complex, mm. also benefiting from it, I'm sure. Let's be honest about it, both sides. Uh, Germany has pledged to spend 100 billion Deutsch, uh, euros to build a new army. I wonder what, what Germany wants to achieve. But Germany, we had them before in history, eight years ago, with this kind of fantasy. But arm, arms race is profitable, and yeah, it is It is the big margin. Hmm. It is, unfortunately, the big business that comes into this. Because ideology-wise, Russia today, not today in this war, but let's say take it a few years back, is a very westernized country. You have common law, you have uh, all kinds of Western elements of 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 society, entertainment, uh, work philosophy, etc., etc., like in the West. Uh, Russia is a European country in a sense, up to the Urals. It's European culture. Mm. Of course, if you fly seven hours east in Siberia, it's not European culture. It's different. But why can't they work together? That's always been my biggest question, and I'm still, you know, I can't understand it. Uh, but Russia now feels threatened, and that's a big, big, huge problem for everybody. Indeed. I think this is a good place to bring it to an end. Sure. For first session together. Um, yep. Could you please let my audience know where they can find out more about you or your work? Oh, about my work, uh, I think you can Google my name. You see a lot of drama because my father got assassinated uh, the 29th of July, 2013. Let me just spell your name, sorry, for the audience. It's just please. listening. Pascal, I want to say this correctly, Nachadi, and that's P-A-S-C-A-L. N A J 
A-D-I. Please go ahead. Correct. So that's, I've been fighting for justice. I want to, I wanted to find the killers and the, the masterminds of this killing of my own father. And I partially succeeded. The ex-prime minister of Malaysia is in prison now, in a real prison. And But we still don't know why the killer has been paid $5,000 to shoot my father. Uh, I'm still working on it, fighting for justice, fighting for peace. Justice means peace. Mm -hmm. But justice is not self-justice. I don't go out and have this person killed. In fact, I don't want even, I don't personally don't even want the shooter to die through a death sentence. That's not the right, that's not my philosophy. Revenge is a very dangerous emotion. Mm. You make a lot of mistakes if you are in a revenge mode. Mm. Uh, we have a law and we have prisons for that. And if, if it's life imprisonment, fine. And yeah, justice and peace are very close together. Mm. Wonderful. And I, I look forward to going into that um, story with you next time. I know that's oh, a really big pleasure. one. Um, yep. Skull, thank you again. This has been a, a wonderful conversation, and I look forward to the next one. Robert, it's a great honor to be with you tonight here, my night. Uh, thank you very much for giving me an opportunity to speak and to voice my opinion. And thank you for the questions. And I look forward to our next session. Mm -hmm.